On this episode of This Week in Linux, we follow up on the kernel performance issues we discussed last week. There's going to be a new contender in the Linux mobile market using Plasma Mobile. We'll also check out some distro news from Fedora, BlackArch, and Intel's Clear Linux. A lot of exciting app news was released this week for upcoming releases to Blender, Kodi, and many more. Later in the show, we'll check out a new game from Valve and some security news. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital, and this is your weekly source for Linux GNUs. Before we get started, since Christmas is right around the corner, I've created a limited time coupon for the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt. 20% off discount when you use the code Linuxmas, or yeah, L-I-N-U-X-M-A-S. The Linux is Everywhere t-shirt is the shirt I made to celebrate the proliferation of Linux. The concept of the design has tucks blended into the background to convey the message. Even if you aren't aware that Linux is there, it probably is. Uh, the shirt is available for shipping in North America and in Europe. So if you want to go, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere, or if you're in Europe, slash Linux Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. And remember the coupon code Linuxmas, L-I-N-U-X-M-A-S. Up first in the show this week is the kernel STIBP patch that we refer, we talked about last week. Those those backports have actually been reverted. So the 4.19.4 and the 4.14.83 kernels have reverted the performance killing STIBP or the single thread indirect branch predictors that we previously reported that had been uh, effect to uh, 50% degradation on performance thanks to the Spectre issues because, yeah, Spectre meltdown. Still going. I'm probably going for a little bit while longer too. Anyway, so it appears that Linus's complaint about it ha- was heard, and they decided to, dec- uh, you know, collectively switch it back and s- like m- switch it up a little bit to see what they could do to make it not so bad. Uh, so with the latest versions of 4.19 and 4.14, they are not you, they're not putting it on by default at all. Uh, I think they've actually removed them completely, or at least reverted those particular patches. However, the 4.20 kernel will have some of these uh, will have some of the mitigation applied but only if you choose to apply it so by default it will be off and then if you turn it on it will only apply to certain processes and certain types of processes so it won't be like it, it originally it was like like globally turned on which may, which crushed the performance and once they decided to do that they decided to remove it from only only certain processes that are really important that potentially could be affected but at the same time most people will not be affected by this particular issue so they decided to turn it off by default so if you're like an enterprise company or something like that with a big infrastructure you might want to turn it on uh, but for the most part most people don't have to worry about it so yeah if you'd like to learn more about this particular topic you can find a link in the show notes to the Pharonics article as well as the posts from Greg KH and Linus about these particular topics up next in the show is the Nikuno, I think, Nikuno uh, Solutions, Nikuno Mobile, uh, which is an open phone or open source phone that is going to be using Plasma Mobile, which is awesome. I'm a big fan of Plasma, so uh, I look forward to trying out Plasma Mobile. However, 
the last time I've heard people talking about Plasma Mobile, there has been some issues. So it's kind of interesting that they chose to do this um, for the default. Uh, but hopefully that it is by the time they release the phone, it will be ready to go. Uh, so because I'm I think that Plasma Mobile is a fantastic looking interface. And when they've shown the demos and stuff, it looked great. So I, I hope that this gets to the point where it could be the, a great solution. Uh, but right, right now, the Nikuno device is not actually available yet. Uh, they said it's going to be using the uh, a 5.5-inch touchscreen, uh, aluminum body with a Linux kernel 4.14, which is an LTS, and the ARM Cortex A9 quad-core processor, and the Vivanti GPU. Now, the, the this particular phone is using the iMX6 uh, Cortex i9, and this is actually kind of similar to the Librem 5 in, in, in many ways, but also a little bit different. Um, the KDE team said, it's important that developers within the mobile ecosystem are available to work with open devices, which are easy to modify and tweak, and not locked to vendors to a particular operating system. Completely agree with that, because, you know, typically right now they're all locked. Because, you know, if even Android, you're you're essentially locked because the phones have these, like, specific baseband structures that kind of make it locked in a way. Uh, but anyway, uh, there's there's no price or release date yet for this particular device. But the guess is around, like, it's going to be cheaper than the Librem 5, probably because the processor itself is a little older than the one that's going to be in the Librem 5. The Librem 5 said they're going to be using the IMX8, whereas this one will be the IMX6. Uh, so the the likelihood that it'll be cost it'll probably cost around like two hundred dollars cheaper or so. So I'm I'm guessing three fifty four fifty something like that. Uh, but anyway, it's a, it's an interesting device, and if they do get that price point, I think that'll be a very solid price point for uh, that for an open source phone. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, but the they haven't really given a release date, and I think that it'll probably be like maybe mid. If this is not a prototype, it kind of looks like a prototype. But if it's not um, mid-2019 uh, because the Librem 5 says they're going to be releasing in April 2019 but because of the delays with the MX, the IMX8 there's probably going to push it back even farther to like the second half or maybe even the fourth quarter of 2019 so I think that it's possible that the Nukino because they're not they're using something that's already available and they don't have to worry about the, the delays with the processor uh, they'll probably beat them to the to the market as far as like when it happens uh, but if you're interested, the uh, the link to the for this article from the KDE as well as the link to the Nikuno's website will be in the show notes below. Up next in the show, Fedora has announced that they well actually it's not really an announcement it's more of a discussion on their mailing list that there could be a potential uh, retooling delay for Fedora 31. So Fedora 30 will be coming out fairly soon in a couple months or so, and Fedora 31 could be delayed up to about a year so that they can do retooling for their infrastructure. And the reason they're doing it is because they've had some issues with how long it takes for certain things to happen. So like certain builds, before they, when they build it and compile it, then they can test it. The process to get to that, to do all that, that everything could be about 12 hours or so. So they could only do it like roughly once a day, depending on what time of the day they do the actual changes. So it like having this retooling structure would allow them to increase that up to like four hours instead of, I mean, instead of 12, it could be like four or maybe even faster if they were to, you know, optimize it even further. Uh, but they said that four would probably be like the most likely scenario. So if they were to do that, that would allow them to output 
more more uh, releases and updates to the system much quicker. And also, eh, there's a kind of a joke about how Fedora typically says that they release every six months, but then they really don't. They usually release every like seven to nine months, maybe like eight in an average. And there's often where you'll see Fedora has been you know set back or postponed for this release for a week or two or weeks or something like that, or even a month sometimes. Uh, that happens, and it's pretty much because of this uh, tooling structure that creates this delay sequence between when they, when they build it and when they test it. So by restructuring it, they'd be able to uh, mitigate that problem and actually get the release on a cert, like a reasonable, um, accurate time frame. So they could say when it's going to be released and we'll actually get to that point. So that would be really good for them. And they've been talking about this for quite a while before the IBM purchase of Red Hat. So if you're wondering, no, that's not related. Uh, but this is, is something that's interesting, and it could affect Fedora in a positive way in the long term, but in the short term might make it feel like they're just, you know, not working on it. But, you know, a lot of people look at releases not coming out as an issue of them not working on it. But um, I think this probably is a good idea for them to do it, and it also allows them to make it where the Fedora community can support, can uh, run the testing and actually like the building stuff themselves so that they would be able to not have to uh, rely on the Fedora team so much to build to create those uh, Fedora labs, basically. But from this is another interesting set of proposals that are happening. One of them is an annual release proposal. They're suggesting instead of doing the six months that they are to consider doing a once a year release and there has been a quite a bit of pushback from that, though, saying that there are some people had concerns about outdated software, and not just for six months, but, you know, you, you'd have outdated software up to a year. You know, Fedora updates things like the kernel and underlying components, but they don't typically update user-facing stacks like the GNOME shell and stuff like that, or like GTK Toolkit and stuff. So there could be issues there. And then based on that, another discussion happened where they were talking about potentially making... Fedora a rolling release through Fedora Rawhide. Now, Fedora Rawhide is, you know, it has its own set of problems, uh, but they said that it's possible with this new new retooling efforts that it might make it possible for the rolling uh, Rawhide structure to actually create a rolling release uh, practical approach. So that would be quite interesting, and I think that um, either way, uh, this retooling thing is probably a good idea. If they could actually set up a rolling release version of it, that would be very, very cool. So I look forward to seeing what happens because it seems like 2019 is going to be very interesting for, for Fedora. So that's going to be pretty cool. If you'd like to learn more about this, you can find a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is Blender 2.80 beta has been released for testing if you'd like to. And if you haven't heard, Blender is a fantastic ridiculously powerful um, application for uh, video editing, game development, 3D modeling, compositing, all kinds of stuff. Like there's a ton of different things. Like there's also like painting effects, texturing, and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, Blender is very robust and very cool. Uh, For the longest time, it's had one of the most irritatingly painful interfaces ever made. But one of the best thing about this new release 
is that they've massively improved the uh, interface itself. They've also redesigned it so it's it's nicer looking, has like a dark theme with flat icons. They've also changed it so like the menus are more consistent. The titles of different effects and shortcuts and structures and stuff like that are all more consistent as much as possible anyway. Depending on the type of like whatever mode you're using, it doesn't matter. They're they're trying to make it as much as possible uh, to be consistent. I mean, they're also doing a switch where selecting things, selecting items, and box selection have now been switched to the left click mouse button. And now I know you're wondering what? Why was it ever not the left click? I don't know. But for years, actually, very many years, it has always been right click to select and do box selection. Uh, eh. But hey, this is much better. And actually, this is also improves it so that they could you could use like a, a tablet or like a, Way- a Wacom tablet or something like that. And then uh, you could use like the, the pen type and, or, like a, or like a touchscreen tablet because it makes it more... Because every time you touch it, it's, it's a left click in like signal. So it allows that to function. So maybe they might make a blender for mobile. I'm not sure why, but they would... Eh, who knows? But also... They've done a lot of cool things. They've upgraded the tool system. They are as far as like the where the they where how it's laid out. Uh, they've created this new like workspace thing where you can arrange like you can create workspaces or there's actually workspaces based on every tool and every mode. But you can also create your own custom workspaces so you can um, customize how the Blender UI functions for you. So if you however you really want to do it, it's really cool. They've also built this new viewport system called Eevee, or E-E-V-E-E, and it focuses on a real-time rendering. So it allows you to see a preview of every, all the renders you're trying to do and all the custom structures and textures and things while you're building it. So it, that's super powerful because it used to be where the render times could take you know, quite a bit of time depending on how extensive your model is, and then you wouldn't be able to see the final outcome until... Uh, the render's done. Now it's doing it real time as you're doing the editing or doing the the, the building of it. So that is super powerful. They've also added a new uh, 2D animation thing called Workbench, which is a it's a type of engine that allows you to uh, manipulate the textures without like just the visual of the rendering, uh, well the the preview, without having to actually change the texture. So you can say. Uh, you can activate this like color mode, and it will automatically uh, give an, a different color contrast, so you can easily pinpoint like different pieces of your model and things like that. Like really cool, super powerful stuff. And they've also done it where there used to be this issue where there was only a certain amount of layers you could have, which was kind of twenty, which is really not a lot for an extensive um, modeling program. But now you can do an unlimited amount of layers as well as like collections which are groups of layers and you can have multiple subgroups of subgroups and sub or you know sub collections and stuff like that and they said it's also a, a unlimited amount of that is too so lots of cool stuff from blender and they're even making it like 30% faster than previous renders tons of different things like blender is like this has been in work for like 3 years and you can tell because there's so much stuff done and so many things have been improved uh, the only thing that's kind of interesting in the sense of like, this is such a big change, it will probably make a lot of tutorials kind of like moot and you'd have to redo them. Uh, but other than that, this is fantastic. Uh, I'm curious about like how how the uh, community would be in, like receptive to all these changes because 
there are a lot of cool things and it's hard to actually like describe them without demonstrating them. So if you would like to, in the show notes, I'll have a link to the blog post for blend for the blender release, as well as a video uh, from blender describing like their top five different uh, tools that are coming in this particular version. They actually did more than five, but you know, that's just the title top five. So I think there's like eight or nine or in there, whatever. But um, there's a ton of cool things and they demonstrate almost all of it to showing you like what all these things are. So if you would like to check that out, I have a link to that in the show notes. Cody 18, Leia the, uh, has been released a release candidate, technically the release candidate one. They've, they haven't really said when they're going to release the full final version, but they are in the final phase of releasing Cody 18, which is very cool. Because there's been uh, been about two years of work based on this uh, this particular version, and if you're not aware, Cody is an entertainment center. It allows you to watch video and movies and music and uh, well, listen to music and uh, all kinds of stuff like even like pictures, slideshows, and all kinds of things. Uh, it's a really it's a really nice um, solution for like uh, home entertainment center and stuff like that. Uh, you can actually. Uh, do a ton of things because Cody works on so many different devices. You could use pretty much whatever device you have. It'll probably work. Like even if you have a raspberry Pi, it'll work. Like I actually have a raspberry Pi model B from like the second generation, I think. And Cody runs just fine on it. Like ridiculously surprisingly well. Uh, so if you wanted to use uh, like a newer version Pi, it'll run even better. So like even as small as a, uh, even as low powered as a Pi can run Cody just fine. And you could have it running on your computer, your laptop, or whatever, or a Pi, or any kind of set-top box, like even the uh, Amazon Fire TV stick and stuff like that can run Kodi. So it's a really versatile um, uh, application, as well as not only just like the features, but also what it can like what it can be used on. Uh, but this latest release is coming with some really really interesting things. They um, they are actually adding the ability to play DRM content. Now they haven't really said exactly what that means as far as like what services are related to the DRM, uh, but theoretically it means that they could be using uh, uh, offering services for Netflix as an add-on and things like that, which would be very cool. Because one of the the only the only drawback, like you can technically use Netflix and Kodi right now, but really the only drawback for Kodi is for a lot of people is because it's kind of difficult to set that up to do Netflix on Kodi. So by adding the DRM playback, they could actually facilitate it that you could use Netflix and eliminate any need for any other type of interface, which is fantastic. They've also made it where you can support Android TV leanback suggestions if you wanted to, as well as uh, voice searching and stuff like that. So, and, and they also said that they're using integrated Wayland support. Not really sure what that means as far as like what what relevance that is to a media player other than just supporting Wayland. Like how is the integration work? I'm not – anyway, they, they haven't really ex- given more details on that, so I'm curious what, what that would be. Uh, so if you know, please let me know in the comments. Uh, but this is a lot of cool stuff is coming in Kodi, and I'm a big fan. I've actually contributed to some add-ons over the years, and I've actually built my own add-on and all kinds of things. So Kodi um, is – you know, one of my one of the projects that I've been a big fan of for like a decade or something like that. I don't know. Uh, I first heard of it on, when it was called XBMC when it was first released on the Xbox, uh, the first Xbox, the original one, not the Xbox One because you know they ruined that naming same that scheme. 
Uh, but anyway, the the what's another cool thing about it is that Xbox was where it started, and they are now releasing a version of, on the Xbox for the Xbox One. So you can now get Cody on the Xbox. So it's kind of like they're returning to their original thing like 15 years ago or something like that. So that's pretty cool too. And if you haven't tried Cody, I think it's definitely worth it. Um, there are some things you should learn, like you should know about like what it uses and like how to use it and stuff like that. So if you wanted to just install Cody and run on your, your laptop, your desktop, perfectly fine. Feel free to do that. Uh, it works great. If you would like to have it on a Raspberry Pi, what you should do is actually check out Libra Elec or Libre Elec. It is a distribution that is designed to run Kodi on a variety of different uh, hardware. So you can uh, download. What's really cool is actually Libre Elec has this installer software. So you ins- you put this installer software on, let's say, an SD card for um, the Raspberry Pi or something like that. You can actually, well, in some cases, it's probably better to do this way. You just put it on your desktop. And then you can take the installer. Then you can um, insert a drive that you want to put the data on, like an SD card. And then you could say, I want to use this particular version of LibreLeck for this piece of this device, and then put it on this drive. And then it will download that that data, that file for that, that image, and then put it on the thing for you. And it makes it really easy to get started with LibreLeck. It's very cool. Now... If you're curious, if you might you might have heard of OpenELEC and some other things, uh, LibreELEC is the one I suggest because it is the most reliable and the most stable and the most um, up to date. Uh, typically, what happens with um, LibreELEC is Cody will release a version and LibreELEC will release a image within like a couple days or hours in some cases. Um, within the first, I think two days, the last on on version 17. They did it within like two days, whereas Open Elect sometimes takes multiple months. Um, so if you already have Open Elect, you could probably just deal with it, I guess, if you want to. Uh, but I do think that Libre Elect is much better. Uh, so if you are interested in trying out Cody on a Raspberry Pi, then check out Libre Elect and check out the show notes for a link to the latest blog post for this uh, potential RC release, as well as a, um, a link to Libre Elect in the show notes. Up next in the show is the release for Midori 7.0. This is a browser that's known as being a lightweight browser. It uses GTK as the toolkit and it is got it's got a, quite a few interesting approaches to how they lay out the system. Uh, but first up that they this release has uh, fixed issues with the URL auto completion, uh, YouTube playback and this uh, invisible text cursor issue they were having. They've also added some uh, benefits to downloads, so you can now get notification bubbles when you start a download, and also when your download's complete, it will highlight the download uh, box on the toolbar until you click it and you know dismiss it. And they've added proxy server support, so you can add you can connect to a VPN or Tor or something else to use like to browse the internet through Midori rather than the basic ISP connection. And they've also done a lot of other under under the hood fixes, or like uh, related to keyboard input and some other things like opening external links and etc. Uh, for like for the web apps, I mean. But speaking of that, uh, one of the things that makes Midori kind of stand out is its support for web apps. And now a lot of people might be thinking um, every browser supports web apps, and that's true. Technically, that's true. But Midori actually has an extra feature 
built into it that makes the web apps even better. So Midori has a web app manager, a web app manager thing. And the the thing about it is that it, it creates this individual session structure. So first of all, here's a good point about like Chrome. When you create a web app, you can like, you know, uh, Chrome is always for a long time, it says add to desktop and it creates this like window for Chrome. But the problem with that is that each of those windows are individual uh, windows added to your system, but they share the same session and cookies and passwords and everything with the main instance of your browser. So if you log into a web app and you make another web app, another copy of that web app, it's still going to be logged into the same session because it shares everything. Whereas Midori takes an individual session approach. So uh, the sessions, the cookies and things like that are all separated for each web app. So you can actually launch uh, individual web apps as like the, the multiple web apps as individual accounts and things like that. So it's really nice to have that kind of approach. Uh, there are some other browsers that do that, uh, but Epiphany is one of them. And um, I think uh, you can actually do like your own electron based setup if you wanted to. Uh, I'm actually might make a video about how to do that if people are interested uh, for the electron thing. Uh, but anyway, Midori, as far as like the browsers that have it built in, Midori is one of the best ones that do it. Um, I'm also doing another video about Firefox's container tab structure, which is similar, but not the same. Uh, so I might do a video about all these. I don't know. Either way, Midori's web app system is actually pretty cool. You might want to check it out. And if you'd like to find a link uh, to, you know, check out Midori seven, you can find a link to the website and the blog post for their latest release in the show notes below. Up next in the show is an interesting application, uh, mainly because of what it's called, and that is Yak Yak. Yeah, its name is Yak Yak. Y-A-K-Y-A-K. It's a desktop client for Google Hangouts, and this is more of a, um, a chat, the chat version of Google Hangouts rather than the video conferencing stuff of it. Uh, but what's really cool about it is that it offers a lot of easier usage of Google Hangouts because Google Hangouts is kind of cumbersome depending on like if you have multiple accounts and things like that. Uh, whereas this allows you to have like you can send send and receive messages from like chat, but you can also send and receive messages from Google Voice. So that's really cool. So and if you have if you have Project Fi with uh, Google like uh, Google Phone, uh, you can use that too. Uh, but it's pretty cool because you can use you you can send messages back and forth with Google Voice that way, uh, and that way you have a desktop client for that. It also allows you to have like uh, conversations with multiple people. Um, you get uh, notifications built into your operating system, your operating system, whatever your desktop is. Um, all kinds of different things like drag and drop um, images for uploading. So you can just uh, or you can just do like the attach button that works too. Uh, there's a lot of stuff too. Uh, you can show inline images like kind of like a sticker approach sort of thing. It also shows you when people are typing, you know, like when, uh, you know, you're talking to someone, it says this person is typing, blah, blah. Those kind of chat messages, like it's kind of built into Google Hangouts, but they've integrated it well into this client. Uh, this client is almost certain, almost guaranteed it's based on Electron. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure it is. For the, So for the most part, it's using the web app structure, but it's got like, it's a lot of modifications to make it like the layout and UI uh, more custom. And while it does technically have integration with the video and the audio parts of Google Hangouts, it doesn't really. Instead, it really, if you activate one of those calls, it will just open up a Chrome window and use it inside of Chrome. So it's, it allows you to start chats 
inside of this application, but you'd actually have to perform those chats in Chrome, for example. I think this is interesting that this exists. It's probably useful for a lot of people. I know some people who do like to use Hangouts. If, if you are one of those people, then this might be something you might like to check out. And you can find a link to it in the show notes for the desktop client of Google Hangouts. Yak yak. So we have a live update uh, for, for the yak yak topic. Uh, thanks to the live chat for the stream, I was notified that Google Hangouts has announced, or Google has announced that Google Hangouts will be discontinued. Well, not really, but t- kind of. The consumer section of Google Hangouts will be discontinued in 2020. So the Yak Yak application is still relevant um, for in you know the time being, and it might be more useful in this in the future for like the business users. Uh, maybe I don't sure not sure how they would adjust for that, but they have. But Google has announced that Google Hangouts for uh, the consumer side will be discontinued in 2020. So I just thought that would be something that was really odd that I just chose to talk about this topic, or this application, and all of a sudden Google decides to. And I, I did not plan that. So, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so thanks to the live chat for letting me know about the update to the Google Hangouts, and uh, so I could put it in the show. And if you would like to join the live chat in the in a future episode, you can join us on every Saturday where we typically stream somewhere around. I can't really give you a time frame. It's usually, it's every Saturday, but just you know, join the Telegram group or follow on Twitter or Mastodon to get updates of when it's about to go live because it it does fluctuate a little bit. Um, well, actually, every time I'm going to work on that. But anyway, uh, if you are interested, you can find a link to the For- Fortune article about the Google Hangouts announcement, uh, as well as Yak Yak in the show notes below. Up next in the show is Clear Linux, which is a distribution from Intel. Intel's open source technology center creates Clear Linux, and this particular release of the like the latest release have a new a lot of new things. They created a, a live uh, like a live environment ISO. They've also made a new installer to make it easier to use desktop uh, the t- desktop version of Clear Linux. So if you haven't heard, Clear Linux is the Intel distribution, and Clear Linux is what's interesting about it really is that a lot of the time it's at the like the peak of benchmarks. Like it's not always the winner, but the benchmarks are usually, you know, it's it's in the top twenty percent most of the time, and in most and in many cases it also does win outright a lot too. So it's really interesting that a lot of like it's it's it might be something worth checking out, but it's very um, kind of complicated in how they structure it and things like that. But the latest version is making that easier. Uh, they still have a lot of work to do it in that sense, but for the most part, they are uh, making it much better. Uh, they used to use XFCE. They've now switched to uh, having versions with GNOME and, and KDE Plasma. So you can have either one of those if you like. And they've also created a new installer for their desktop edition of Clear Linux. Now the, the installer is, well, it's basically like an InCurses terminal installer. So while it's not, te- it's not like a terminal, like command running stuff, but it is like a... A terminal applica- a terminal installer, so it has like uh, text-based uh, graphics kind of thing. Uh, it, it's more like if you just search up InCurses installer, it'll look like that. Or actually, I'll have a link in the show notes to an article about the Clear Linux project from Pharonix, so you can have a, you can check that out as far as like how the install works. But um, essentially, it is a text-based installer that you go through these different configurations and stuff. 
Uh, the, the problem with it is that it used to be a lot more limited in how it worked. So it, once you got it, it installed, you still had a lot of work to do. So you, it was basically for experienced people at that point. Um, but now they've done a lot of work to the installer to make it easier to use than the previous versions. Um, it's not really meant for the average user in general, uh, but it is a lot easier to deal with than the previous versions. So if you uh, would you like to give it a try and just to see how it works, uh, you can find a link to Clear Linux in the show notes. Up next in the show is Valve's Artifact game has been released, and it had day one Linux support, so that's always nice. Uh, Valve's Artifact is a cross-platform Vulcan-powered digital col- card collecting game. Um, they've done, you know, Valve has done a ton of stuff for Linux for you know for many years, uh, so it's really cool when they when they announced Artifact they were going to have day one support. Uh, which is kind of like the normal thing for Valve now, but yeah, I think that I don't know if this no, this is not the first one. Uh, but they've 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 uh, the fact they have day day one does show how much they are dedicated to it. Plus the whole Steam Play system, you know. Anyway, mad respect to Valve, so thank you. Uh, if you are curious, it is available now. It's around nineteen dollars to purchase it if you are interested, and it is kind of like a, it's really interesting because it has a weird approach. So there's there's it's a card it's a digital card collecting game kind of like Hearthstone, except for Hearthstone is you have one, um, like lane, not well it's, it's just you have one board that you battle against, whereas in Artifact you have three boards and they call each of them lanes, three different boards at the same time, and the way you win can be affected by multiple different lane approaches. So it's an interesting structure how they do it. If you would like to learn more about this, you can find a link in the show notes to the game as well as a link to the Destination Linux episode, uh, which is episode 98, because we had um, we had a, a special guest that, helped, that joined us to talk about gaming, Linux gaming, especially uh, Artifact. We talked about that uh, quite a significant amount. And that guest was Liam from GamingOnLinux.com. So I'll have a link to the game Artifact as well as a link to the episode of Destination Linux 98 where Liam joined us. So if you'd like to you know, check that out, you can in the show notes. Up next in the show, Amazon has launched a custom ARM-based CPU called Graviton. And this is interesting for many reasons. Um, but first of all, I just wanted to point out that there's this, uh, this is a side tangent, uh, admittedly, but at the, like, the blog post has a audio file and essentially, they have this new service called Amazon Poly, which will then transcribe, uh, well, not transcribe, but take, uh, it'll do text-to-speech uh, and take it the blog post. So, like, the, the audio file is just the blog post in audio form. So, if you want to listen to it rather than read it, you know, there's an option there for you. Uh, so, that's kind of an interesting thing, and then also I'm pretty sure it's a service that people can use. Um, so, completely side tangent, not relevant whatsoever. Just wanted to point that out. thought that's kind of interesting. But what about the uh, the CPU? So... The CPU has five different versions of it. They it's all based on ARM, but they have the the A1 dot medium version, the large, the extra large, the 2x large, and the 4x large. And to go to the the, the peak one, the 4x large has uh, 14 virtual CPU. No, sorry, 16 virtual CPUs, and this is like basically threads. And it has up to 32 gigs of RAM and up to 10 gigabit. Uh, per second bandwidth for the network bandwidth. Uh, so it, it sounds like a very beefy setup. And, and you know you would assume that the AWS 
would have like the, the CPU used by Amazon on their own services would be the best option. But apparently that's not the case. So Pharonix had wrote an article about benchmarking uh, the, the new Graviton and CPU as well as some other offerings they have on AWS. Uh, so I'll have a link to both the blog post and the Pharonix article, but the Pharonix article basically says that the, the uh, Graviton used would performed very, you know, quite poorly actually like really subpar uh, and from his benchmarks. And he says at this point at the end of 2018, there isn't much to get excited about for these Graviton processes on EC2 because basically it won in like two of the like 20 tests he did. So for the majority of the time, it was at the, either at the bottom or in like in the middle of well, like, so there's really like most of the other options were better. So it was really interesting that they, that, uh, that was the outcome. Cause I would assume that the Amazon CPU would be the best option for the Amazon services, but apparently at the moment it's not. But if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the blog post from Amazon as well as the benchmark tests from Pharonix in the show notes below. Up next in the show is a security issue that Node, the Node.js or the NPM people have dealt with, with for the event stream hack. Now, the event stream is a package that relates to another package. And uh, effectively, what happened was a package, a module for an NPM was being... Uh, maintained by someone for many years, but that person didn't actually use that software anymore. So they were maintaining it just out of like, you know, necessity of like, because they started it more of an obligational thing. They like, they felt like they were obligated to do it. So what happened was I, this particular person um, was contacted by someone else who said that they, they offered to maintain the module so that he didn't have to, because they thought that, because they would use it. What turns out that person was actually had malicious intent and when they took over maintenance they then started injecting other stuff. So they injected another package that runs an encrypted payload that the uh, the NPM people said they don't even currently know uh, what all the, the payload does because it's encrypted. So they said that if you happen to find the package in your environment you should absolutely respond as if the system has been compromised and remove it and you know, clean it out as much as possible because there's a likelihood that it has been compromised in the same kind of thing. So it's, it's interesting because the original maintainer said, I don't get anything from maintaining this module and I don't even use it anymore and haven't for years. And that's why he gave it to someone else. He didn't know that this person was, had malicious intent. So they basically took advantage of a situation where the guy just, he didn't really want to have to maintain it anymore because he didn't use it. And, he didn't really have an interest in it, and he didn't make any money from it, even though thousands and thousands of other modules depended on it. He didn't really have a benefit to do it. So it's kind of like um, a situation where the person who's maintaining the piece that's being used elsewhere doesn't have incentive to keep that piece, which then creates a potential uh, issue for in the future. So example that it could be something like this where someone takes over and does malicious uh, in um, actions on it or they could just stop maintaining entirely and therefore the people who are depending on it would no longer be able to use it right you know uh, well reliably I suppose they could still keep using it if they wanted to but they wouldn't have like anyone guarantee that fixes would be done and stuff like that it's actually kind of interesting because this this kind of goes along with the idea of the Unix philosophy 
which is the, you know, do something, do one thing and do it well. And then everything else would integrate with each other and make things work together. That does sound good. And in many ways, it is a good thing. But at certain levels, it gets kind of complicated. So at this point, uh, this person was making a module that a lot of people depended on. But he didn't really want to make that module anymore. And he only did it out of obligation. Well, self-imposed obligation, really. So he had really no incentive to it. So the fact that as soon as someone wanted to take it over, he was you know willing to do it because he didn't want to do it anymore. So it creates this, like, it could be a break point in many different ways if you if you have all these things that are interconnected. Because the more gears you have in the machine, the more ways it could break. So anyway, it's just an interesting situation because this is a, this is kind of like, it's not like a social engineering thing. It's more of um like a situation that, it's not a new attack vector or anything. It's more of a, a thing that could exist and has been known for a very long time that could exist, uh, that could happen. And um, I don't think there's a there's not really a solution to it, other than trying to give incentive to people to maintain these modules. Like if you were example, if you were creating this module that depended on another module, and then you wanted to like make sure that that module kept working, you could do like uh, donations to that project or something like that. Um, you know, I don't know, something like that. Just we should just brainstorm about what the possible solutions are in the comments. So, if you want to find out more about this this uh, this issue, you can find a link. It's at, by the way, it has been fixed in the sense that they have flagged it and it's been removed. And I'm pretty sure the guy who uh, gave control has got it back. So, yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes if you'd like to learn more. So, we found another security issue with Marriott. They announced that there was a data breach for their Starwood hotels and they have confirmed that the guest the hotel guest database has been stolen in a data breach and it involves about 500 million customers or guests however you want to call it they said they detected this in early September and it, but it may go back as far as like being used to 2014 so it's possible that you know for that long period of time. I don't they haven't really said if it's continuously been breached or just that one time, I don't know. But they did say that it was uh, detected in September. The company said that it obtained an decrypted database on November 19th and determined that the contents were from the Starwood guest reservation database. The information that they collected in this is very bad. Very bad. They don't have They've said that they don't have. They think that there's not computer. I mean, not computer, but there's not credit card information involved. But they also think that if it is involved, um, there is some. Well, not all the time, but they said sometimes they had examples of credit card data encrypted that was involved. But they don't know if they actually were able to breach and take the decryption software too. So we don't know what that's happening. But there's stuff that's even worse than that anyway. So let's just talk about it a little bit. So, guest name, naturally, the postal address of where they live, where they live, their phone number, the date of birth, their gender, their email address, their rewards information from their, I guess, their points or something, uh, the arri- r- arrival and departure information for their flights, um, or no, arrival and departure information from being at the hotel, sorry, reservation date, and even the communication preferences, whether you like text or phone or email or whatever. But, to make it even worse... They also got passport numbers for and this. They, they say that not all 500 million, but all of those things that I listed, 
uh, has affected around 327 million records. So, yeah. And the passport number is one of the worst things to have because or to get because if you if it's because there's such a huge chain because Marriott is the biggest hotel chain in the world like 1200 properties or something it makes it uh you know not very good because having the passport means that you have like a global identifi- identification number for someone and you know one of the worst things you could get well, the credit card Actually, the credit card is probably one of the easiest things to not worry about. Like, if, if someone to, were to take your credit card in a breach, you could just call your credit card company, cancel the card, get a new card, and you're fine. You know? It's not, technically, it's not directly connected to you. It's connected to their company. So, the, the money in a credit card is not actual money, you know? So, like, for example, a debit card, if someone were to take your debit card and use it, well, they just took your money. Because it's in your bank, it's coming from directly from your bank, so they did take your money. It would be very difficult to get the money back. But the credit card is different because you can take a credit card and you have like 30 days to pay it off. So you could just contact the company, said, "Hey, it was stolen. I didn't buy any of that stuff. Cancel the card, blah." And they'll be like, "Okay, cool. We'll cancel it. it, it you know, move on." And they'll send you a new card. And that's it. So in a in a sense, the credit card is one of the easiest things to get rid of. Or, or to replace and, you know, bypass the problem. But the passport and your name and your address, not good. Anyway, what is another interesting piece of this is that because they found out and they detected in September, they decrypted it and obtained the information in November 19th, and we only recently found out about this a couple days ago, means that they might... I don't know when they technically disclosed it, but they might have missed the GDPR requirement of 72-hour notice because there's a clause in the new EU uh, GDPR that says if you don't, if you if you once you detect and confirm a issue like a data breach, you have to disclose it within 72 hours of finding out. It sounds like they didn't do that, so there's a potential for a pretty big fine towards Marriott from the from the EU. So I'm curious to see how that goes because um, it's not good that this breach happened anyway, but it is going to be interesting to see what happens with the GDPR issue uh, related to it. So if you'd like to learn more about this particular situation, I'll find I'll have a link to a blog post about it in the show notes below. Up next in the show, the Linux Foundation has partnered with the Risk V Foundation, and they are. Uh, they announced that they have a joint collaboration effort today to promote the open source development and adoption around the royalty-free CPU instruction set architecture that is RISC-V. Uh, RISC-V. I'm not sure if it's RISC-V or RISC-V. I think it's RISC-V, but I could be wrong. Uh, I'm going to keep continuing calling it that, though. So if I'm wrong, let me know. Uh, both parties are hoping this will grow the RISC-V ecosystem and lead to new applications and architectures for computing. The Linux Foundation says they will be providing an influx of resources for the RISC-V ecosystem, such as training programs, infrastructure tools, as well as community outreach, marketing, and legal expertise. So that's pretty cool because they're you know promoting the open source uh, CPU architecture or the instruction set architecture or the ISA. I'm not sure if that's an acronym for that or not. But uh, it's pretty cool that they're doing this because it, uh, the RISC-V is pretty cool and uh, any kind of like the open source instruction set is very important and it's a very very important thing that that it, if it had more adoption it would be really good uh, because you know 
open source any kind of thing is typically good. I can't say always good, but typically good. So uh, I really like to hear about the Linux Foundation, you know, helping out, you know, providing uh, tools and facilities and, and or, uh, to facilitate uh, the growing of the uh, the community and the potential of the Risk Foundation itself or the Risk Five Foundation itself. So anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this and find a link in the show notes to the blog post from the Linux Foundation as well as the Risk Five Foundation. So I'll have that in the show notes. Up next in the show is Facebook's Bolt, or the Binary Optimization and Layout Tool, which is designed to speed up Linux binaries. Uh, it's a, a Linux command line utility used for optimizing performance of binaries. That's how they describe it. And it's a Facebook incubator project for speeding up these b- binaries of the x86-64 ELF binaries, as well as uh, another architecture. I don't remember exactly which one, um, but similar, x86, similar thing. Um, Bolt, they all, this is how they describe it on the GitHub page. It says, uh, Bolt is a post-link optimizer developed to speed up large applications. It achieves the improvements by optimizing applications code layout based on the execution profile gathered by the sampler sampling profiler, such as the Linux perf tool. So uh, essentially it just kind of like takes uh, the code and optimizes the code to see if it will perform better. Um, and it also it supports with uh, LLVM as well as I think they're pretty sure they're working on support for GCC. And it's... Um, yeah, okay, it does work on GCC and CLang as well, too. So, uh, well, they claim to it does. What's interesting about it is that um, there's an, I'll have a post to the GitHub page in the show notes, but also the link to uh, a Pharonix article about it because he said that he's uh, he's interested to see what happens. He's going to like think about benchmarking. He said, I probably will benchmark it, but he hasn't done so yet. So um, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. So hopefully... Um, having a link to that, if he does an update to that post and saying, like, does the benchmark, it'll be there. So that'd be good. Anyway, if you're interested in checking out more about the possibility of speeding up Linux binaries, if you're in kind of like a development, um, you're a developer or a a distro maintainer or something like that, uh, I have a link to the Facebook's Bolt. I mean, it's Facebook, so... I mean, it's open source, so I guess kind of, but it's Facebook, so... Anyway, I have a link in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. If you'd like to submit some news for the show, you could do that at the, at the subreddit by going to thisweekinlinux.reddit.com. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And just a reminder, the show is live usually every Saturday, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.